0: Pot, grass, shake, bud, ganja,
1: chronic, cannabis, cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than ten years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey buddy, hey, hey buddy, psst, psst, hey buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am. Fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment in legalization go up in smoke? <coughs> Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry, the activists, the medical professionals, the legislators, the economists, the regulators, and the lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on The Coin Podcast Network. All industries have trade associations, a group of businesses within the industry that help promote, organize, lobby, and collaborate for the growth of that industry. Cannabis is no different. On this episode, we talk with the Oregon Cannabis Association, comprised of a diverse group of cultivators, processors, retailers, entrepreneurs, and allied businesses. What work was done by the OCA to start our industry? What are they working on now, and what challenges does Oregon still face looking ahead to a possible national or even global market?
0: You're listening to Mainstream Media.
1: Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award-winning newscast one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus Portland's most accurate forecast certified by Weather Rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you. Welcome back to Mainstream Media. Megan Wallstatter is the interim director for the Oregon Cannabis Association She's also the chair of the OCA board and a founding member She and her husband co-founded Pure Green Medical Dispensaries and now co-own Siren Cannabis an OLCC licensed cultivation company. So Megan what leads you to the cannabis industry?
0: Yeah well my husband was a medical patient and she, cannabis helped him with all of his issues and it really he was sick for 10 years and threw up daily. So cannabis helps him be able to get through those 10 years. So he was a medical patient, then we became medical growers. And then we both have a, I like to call it our diploma drawer. I have a master's in urban and regional planning from Portland state. And my husband has a law degree from Lewis and Clark. We kind of put those in the drawer. And then when the law was passed that we could have medical dispensaries in Oregon back in 2013, I kind of describe it as us dusting out the diploma drawer and realizing that we had a lot of good skills in house that we could use to open up a dispensary. And it was right around the time when my husband's health shifted. So it was kind of like his bucket list item, you know, to do a dispensary. And so we just went for it and we opened our store in 2014. Pure Green was one of the first stores to get licensed through the medical program in the state of Oregon. We were also on the finance committee for Measure 91. So we did a lot of work that year as well, getting it on the ballot and then also helping pass
1: it as well. When was the Oregon Cannabis Association formed? Was it right after the passage of Measure 91? Or does it predate the passage?
0: It was predating, actually. We opened our store in January 2014 and the first, uh, we used to be called the Oregon Growers Pack. That was our former name. And that first meeting was in February 2014. So the Growers Pack formed and simultaneously, there were some members that were also on the finance committee with us. So some of us are wearing dual hats there. Because at that time, uh, OHA was possibly looking at licensing growers too. So We wanted to make sure that the licensing program worked well and then it evolved into being able to advocate for the recreational program as well once that was passed and we knew that was a reality. So it was a busy year. 2014 wasn't boring.
1: Explain to the listeners what the Oregon Cannabis Association does. What is the mission? of this association
0: sure well we are a trade association so we're a diverse group of cultivators processors retailers entrepreneurs and allied businesses and our mission is to help one another thrive through networking events educational workshops and political representation so we really kind of mimic any other trade association we just happen to be for cannabis
1: so walk me through those early days measure 91 passes What is the first thing the OCA starts doing? Because it had to have been crazy that first 12 to 18 months after passage.
0: It was crazy from the very beginning. So you're absolutely right. We knew that the success of the industry would be having regulations that worked for the industry. We knew that it was going to be housed within the OLCC and we wanted it to look different than alcohol because It was already a flourishing industry, depending on how you look at it, before it went to the OLCC. So there was a lot of ways that things naturally worked already. So we wanted to make sure that it worked well for the industry and that we had the right types of licenses so that we could get people in making all sorts of products. You know, Oregon was unique that we had medical stores before our rec program launched. So we had a whole system of what retail looked like. We had products, we had companies, we had vendors. So we wanted to make sure that during that transition that we gave the most opportunity for the most amount of people to pivot that wanted to pivot. We left things open. We brought down some of those barriers to entries that we see in other states. You know, we wanted to make it be affordable. We wanted to encourage people to come out of the unregulated and gray market into the white, you know, literally come out of the basement and into the light. We really tried to look at comprehensive things that would allow the most amount of participation. So a lot of states have a really high license fee. We decided to bring those down and make them more affordable. And, you know, in hindsight, we always learn things and we can look back at that and say, was that the best choice? But hindsight's a beautiful thing or a very hard thing, depending on how you're looking at it. And the other thing that we wanted to make sure, one of our biggest things was also working with the labs and getting the labs educated because the labs was, were kind of a newer piece, right? And that science was being developed as the rules were being developed as well. So that was very challenging in some ways. And then of course, there was a lot of issues with pricing with labs. A lot of our energy went towards making sure the labs were actually doing what they were doing and what they were supposed to be doing and that the fees were appropriate for the testing and digestible for the users. And I think getting all of the licenses just outlined, I mean, there was so much work. It's hard to even remember all of it because there's still always so much work to do as well. But we were heavily involved in testifying. We were working with legislators. We were working with the OLCC. We were working with the OHA, you know, all the regulating agencies and then also legislators at the local, the city and at the state and even at the national level. Earl Blumenauer was a huge part of Measure 91 as well. And we have a really great working relationship with him because of all that work and sweat equity that we all put in in that very beginning. Then, you know, working with different cities as well, because then we had, you know, the ability for cities to come up with their own ordinances. So you can look at the city of Portland as an example, and how it looks so different to get a license from the city of Portland than it does, say, from the city of Salem. So we had to spend a lot of time actually working with certain cities and counties to either not vote us out to vote us in. And then when when they were voted in or looking at what their regulation systems would look like, again, making sure that it was not going to hinder people's ability to enter the market and have them be sound regulations instead of costly and burdensome and sometimes just even xing people out just by because of all the, the rules and the intersects of how they all combine too.
1: Now here we are seven years down the road, What legislative or regulatory areas are you looking at going, that was great? That was great. This was great. But these areas still need some work.
0: Yeah. Well, you just reminded me. One thing that I didn't mention earlier was the great debate between residency and non-residency requirements, right? That was something that we advocated, the OCA advocated for no residency requirements for the program. And it was actually interesting. My husband, who's also involved with the OCA and, you know, our business partners, I felt like we should have a residency requirement and he didn't. So it even divided people in their own houses. Right. So we were just left that topic off topic. We we, we weren't allowed to talk about it at home. So looking back at that, I mean, for me personally, I could see that being something that we could have tweaked and maybe had a residency requirement. The biggest thing about the industry right now and you know, some of the biggest challenges is that we are in oversaturation. Every license type is at saturation or close to becoming saturated, minus labs. We can always use some more good labs out there. So when we look at other states, that had limits on their licenses, those operators are operating in a different playing field because there's less competition. It is huge barriers to entry and not everybody, you know, I would have loved to have capped licenses if I knew I was getting a license, right? You know, I mean, that's always how that works. So I think what we could have done a better job is looking at market trends to evaluate how many licenses we really needed. In the beginning, back in 2015, we were beginning to develop our really relationship with the OLCC, we tried to tell them, like, you're going to get a lot of applications. And they lowballed the number because they were just starting out. They had no idea. You know, it was just, it was their first attempt at figuring out what the industry looked like. And I wish we could have go back and do more of an economic analysis of how much we needed. But again, that didn't exist. Now we know so much more, right? Like we know what per capita looks like. We can say like a smaller state with like Oregon, who doesn't have the recreational tourism, like Colorado does. They have more people coming in to visit. So their stores or numbers are going to look different than Oregon. You know, Oregon has recreational tourism, but we're not California. We're not Colorado. We just don't have that base. And we're not a wealthy state compared to some other states that are out there like California or Colorado. You know, it's just, it's a different playing field. So I think the economics of it all, I think would have been, if we could have wrapped our heads around what that looked like in the very beginning, kind of coming in with a little bit more data, but you know, that's the growing pains of going third, right? As we didn't, like you said, we didn't have that. We had the two Models. And it was like, well, we didn't want to be like Washington. And we liked Colorado's a little bit better. So we tried to tweak it a little bit and we created like the Oregon model. But we're a little bit on the continuum closer to Colorado's model than we are to the Washington model. And it's been interesting living next to the state that we wanted to be the opposite from and seeing how our two markets play off of each other. I mean, when we had medical and you could get your medical cards from out of state, people from Washington would come over. You know, um, when we had the store in Pier Green, we had a lot of Washington people that would come over. When we opened up early sales, And we had the lower tax rate. We had a ton of people come over from Washington. When our tax rate went up, they went back over. And the fact, you know, in the very beginning of when we opened our stores until the Washington market kind of turned, the two highest selling stores in Washington's program were the Vancouver stores because they had all of us going over. So we didn't even factor in how the interstate regulated markets would play off of one another. You know, we were so focused on trying to make it easy to get people out of the unregulated market into the regulated market those are some of the lessons learned that, I mean, I still don't know what the right answers are. And I think we're doing our best right now. You know, one of the bills that we're looking at this session, I just had a hearing for it this morning, actually, it's a HB 4016. And that would be the bill as it stands right now calls for the producer moratorium to be extended for another two years, but there's a dash one amendment. And that actually calls for a full license moratorium, excluding labs. That bill also introduces a equity program that would come out of the surrendered license program. So we could, Start to develop a little bit of an equity licensing system within Oregon because it's hard now. We can't go back and redo the rules, but we can find openings to create those programs. Again, it's one of those growing pains of going first and having the world change around you and having certain things become much more prevalent and a bigger thing to examine as far as the success of our program.
1: Mangan, will federal reform help alleviate some of that saturation issue, at least?
0: Basically, yes. Yes, absolutely. It will. If you look at a state like Nevada, Nevada does not have, and it wouldn't be just producers, it would be processors as well. So we can get all the products, right? So absolutely, it would help with the processors, the wholesalers, and the producers being able to move their product across state lines. It would also allow retailers to also move across state lines. You could open a store in a different state with a lot more ease, right? The state like Nevada, they don't have, right? California's saturated, Washington's saturated. So opening up those borders, it would be a great great idea so that we could start moving things across state borders, absolutely. But would it solve saturation? Probably not. But like a state like Nevada, which we do have a very short little tiny border with, but that counts as a border state, they don't have a lot of producers. You can't grow outdoors in Nevada the way you can in California and Oregon and Washington, right? So they run into a supply issue. They have plenty of demand. I mean, those stores are doing insane amount of volumes and it doesn't, you don't have to just be in Vegas either. They're really doing well, but they have their licensing system there. So when you look at it from that point of view, right, if you look at the states that are still aren't online, the states where it's still illegal and being able to get in there first and get that foothold or be able to help out another state, you know, that doesn't have their production and supply end as dialed as they need to for their demand, there's absolutely opportunity. But like I said earlier, going to California, I mean, it would help with brand recognition potentially and, you know, getting your company more recognized. But would that solve the saturation? I'm not sure. It would probably create a whole different set of problems that we don't even know about yet because we're not there.
1: So to me, I would think that the West Coast is poised to be the supplier to the rest of the United States ultimately. And if we see federal reform... We're also looking at, eventually, global distribution. Then our product could become a brand like Oregon Pinot. And I would think that that's going to benefit the entire West, all three of those states that have an overproduction problem, because we produce a lot of high quality product and we just need to find a way to move it. Am I correct in that assumption? Absolutely.
0: And we're known for that product and have been known for that product, you know, for a long time. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, if we can get that moving and across those state lines and we can help out states like New York when they come online, you know, that. That it does nothing but help us, right? It helps with that saturation. No one really knew how much product was in Oregon until we started counting it. Now we know a lot more because we're because we're, products are in metric and there's a way to count them, and we know where things are coming in. You know, we didn't have that accountability or record keeping before. We are known for our cannabis. Just as much as we are known for our Pinot, it's just different markets.
1: What is the Oregon Cannabis Association working on legislatively this session, specifically?
0: Sure. Well, I... Refer to um, HB 4016, which is one of our big bills that we're looking at right now. The other one that we have is HB 4048, and that's the speaker's bill. And it's about emerging businesses. And it would allow an outside economic analysis of what's needed in the cannabis industry to be prepared for interstate commerce or federal legalization. It's kind of both ways that we're looking at it, because maybe we can open up the border between Nevada and Oregon before it lifts up federally, you know, so both ways we're looking at things right now. That one would be Huge because that's kind of the stuff that I'm talking about. If we had that information before, we could do an even better job when, you know, when we went to just legalizing within the state. So the SB 4048, I'm personally very excited about because it also moves that economic analysis out of the OLCC and out of metric. And metric is the state tracking system, which is great. It does a wonderful job. We know where product is, but it doesn't do everything that we need it to do to predict the economy and provide economic analysis for the industry and predictions and things like that. So we really need economists to be looking at this and using their economist brains and moving it outside of that regulators, because sometimes when it's our data, it's our data. You know, so I look forward to seeing what a third party examination of the organ industry would look like and prepare what we need to prepare for that next big pivot that's ahead for us. We've got a couple of bills in the Senate as well, SB 1506 is a bill we're hoping doesn't go too far. We're actually working against this one instead of for it. So this is where we switch a little and that one would allow city and counties to increase their tax by 7%. So that's very scary for the industry because when we are already strapped and oversaturated and prices are dropping, increasing the taxes will only hurt the industry more. So it does the opposite. People think if you raise the tax, then there'll be more money, but it would actually fold businesses. And then the total output would look very different. So we're working pretty hard on that one. I don't know how far it will go. We weren't expecting it to get on the floor at all this session, but it's out there. And we're really concerned about about what that looks like in 2023. You know, it's a big one to push through.
1: Currently, what is an Oregon cannabis business tax rate? Federal, state, and then right now, local jurisdictions can get up to 3%, right? But this would push it to 10% if it passes.
0: Right. So it's two different things that you're talking about. So there's the retail sales tax, right? So that's what the consumer pays at the store. Right now, that's 3%. So most people are seeing 20%. As their tax, right? Because you've got the 17 from the state, and then three for the city or county, depending on your structure. So it would up that to 27% tax. So that's what the prices would look like at the stores, right? So then that would impact behind the scenes how much retailers can price things and where their profit margins might be. And then it also just trickles down. Sure, in theory, it's being taken. The money is being taken from the customer, but the reductions happen behind the scenes, right? Before it gets to that that point. Customers will just I mean, I've had people walk out of my store multiple times. People will be like, "Wait, you have that for how much? I'll go down the road." I was on the Green Mile on um, Sandy Boulevard in Portland, Oregon, literally a dispensary every 1000 feet. I had people walk in and out all the time. I know that's real. People will shop and they can. In most jurisdictions, they can now because there are so many retail outlets. You have your choices or you can get it delivered potentially for a cheaper price. Then there's the state tax. Well, state tax actually what Oregon did was was really awesome. Awesome. So 280E is a federal tax law. 280E, that's what hits us at the federal level. Then what Oregon did was in 2016, they passed a law saying that cannabis businesses, if they were legally operating and licensed appropriately, depending on their license type, they could deduct the 280E costs from their state income tax. So at the state level, the impact on the, or the company is not is not the same as it is at the federal level. The federal level, the two ADE deductions that we're not able to take are payroll, You know, you can't deduct any marketing, any advertising, all that stuff. And it hits different license types differently. The retail licenses get hit hardest by 280E because we are doing the drug trafficking because we hand the product over to the customer. The other license types are doing manufacturing and they can deduct more costs because of inventory management. The retail stores don't get that option. So, you know, when you hear, oh, well, it'll just go to the customer. Why can't the retail stores? The retail stores must be doing fine. It's like, no, we actually get hit harder with that. I mean, 75, 80% of our payroll, I had to pay taxes on at the federal level. That's a lot of money.
1: I'd like you to look at this less as an OCA representative and more as the retailer. What has Oregon done really well in the past seven years? What did Oregon get absolutely right.
0: I mean, I think that what we allow and how the license types, we've really nailed that down. I think we've really given people an opportunity and not everyone would get that opportunity. Sure, it makes it hard in different ways, but I still do believe that that is the right thing to do. I still believe that people that want to get in and can figure out a way to do it, they should get in. We should have it be a little bit lower barrier to entry. We shouldn't be requiring six figures to be able to enter the market. Like that's not that we're going way. I feel like we really captured the essence of Oregon in some of our brands, a lot of our brands, you know, we really have done the, a- a great job as far as that's concerned. I think we have some really great relationships that we've formed as well. We have champions. I think that there's been a a rise in advocacy that there's, you know, other trade associations or other groups out there that are doing the similar work to the OCA. And I think that's great that we have that many groups that are that passionate about making sure that we have things that work well. You know, I mean, that's the Oregonian way, really. I think that's been wonderful. I think we've really pushed things in a way that's been positive. You know, we've gotten some traction. We've been able to make some difference. You know, we've been able to see the power of our voice. And I think that's been something that we've done really well. You don't have to have a lobbyist who's down in Salem pushing for these things. There still is access to regulators and legislators for the average person as well to really get their message out there and to be able to navigate the system if that's what they choose to do. So I think we've really created a robust market here. And we've given a lot of people chances that wouldn't have had that chance normally or not normally, but in a different state in a different time, right? If we had gone 10th, who knows what our rules would look like. You know, we really did at, at the time when we were creating the rules and really creating the backbone of what the regulated industry would look like. We did a good job of trying to, like I said earlier, give everybody the opportunity to pivot that wanted to take that opportunity, you know, and that was really how we were going to get what we refer to as that Oregon brand to continue to be an Oregon brand on the other side.
1: Beyond license status, and the taxation issues, what is the next biggest challenge that the OCA needs to address?
0: Oh, man. Yes. So fear mongering and unwinding the, the perceptions of the unregulated market and the regulated market. So there's still so much of the assumption that we are criminals, that we were, you know, renegades. And, you know, some some people do have that in their story, but not everybody does. I think the biggest challenge is that we have rule making and rule changes. And then we also have legislators where we get can get legislative laws or rule changes that will affect the industry today, right? That's our biggest hurdles that we navigate. And a lot of those can come out of fear mongering instead of out of what is best for the industry. And so sometimes we have to unwind so much of what is perceived as like criminal activity. And sometimes we get lumped into things because it's the same plant, right? You know, there's a big water bill right now and they're looking at people that are unregulated cannabis growers who are stealing water, right? And the regulated market keeps getting lumped into it. And we're like, but we're the good actors. We shouldn't be getting penalized as the way same way as an unregulated grower is because we are doing things by the books. So I think that is still our biggest challenge is to have rules be created for and incorporate what works for the industry, not just what works on paper. You know, I think we could do a better job during rulemaking with the OLCC of having the industry feedback and we need to work on what that looks like. It's been a big hurdle. The last rule changes that just came through set some precedents that might be really hard to unwind and we'll have to see what we can do in the long session in 2023 if we have any chance of changing some of those rules. And again, with the legislators, you know, it's interesting, right? So HB 4016 is that license moratorium. And it's so interesting. We have all these Republicans that support it because it's anti-cannabis, right? It stops cannabis. So it's working to our advantage in that situation, but we need to move past that we're the only industry in the state that brings in sales tax. We bring in how much money and why are we still being treated? Like if there's still so much taboo around it, right. And it's decades and decades of those perceptions and those take a while, you know, but that's our, I think our biggest challenge.
1: And to follow up on that, Jeanette Ward Horton with new project brought up a similar thing when we spoke and said that, as she put it, the can of bigotry that is facing the industry is one of the biggest drawbacks. And I challenged her as she was previously a marketer for Coca-Cola. I asked her, as a marketing professional, what will it take to change those hearts and minds? And I'll ask you the same thing. What do you think it will take to normalize cannabis in Oregon? To have it viewed like craft beer or Oregon wine. To make it where it's just something that adults enjoy or that it's also medicine that people absolutely rely on. How does that message start to truly sink in and hit home or does it just take time?
0: I mean, time is always of essence in those situations. I mean, kind of my own personal philosophy on that is to come out, right? You know, I use that analogy before, of like coming out of the basement, like when Matt and I opened the store, I cons- I was like, we're not even out of the basement. Like I'm in the middle of the 84, right? Like people know who I am. We were in the news. So we just did things to put ourselves out there. I mean, our son's kindergarten conference, the teacher started talking to us about measure 91 because she saw us on the news, right? So. For us, our personal philosophy is to get out there, talk about it, wear our logo because we're normal, just like you, right? Like I live in a nice neighborhood in Portland. Like I'm in Northeast Portland. I have a 12 year old son. He goes to school. He's got classmates. Like we're not afraid of it. And and that may be easy for me to say just from my vantage point. But that's the thing that I've always been like. In order to normalize it, we need to come out in front of it, say what we're doing, and then at the next level, as far as like that's my personal thing. I mean, I. Can tell you can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with mom friends about gummies and edibles and all these things because now I'm like the go-to cannabis person, right? Just on that like one-to-one level, that was one thing that we set out to do is to break that stigma because I'd be like, look, like you wouldn't pick me off the side of the street when I'm walking with my kid at a school function and be like, that's the girl that owns the dispensary in the grub. So normalize it in our everyday world. That was number one. And then I think on a bigger level, on the state level and how we can do it, like, you know, I can't have every legislator over to my house and see how normal I look and, you know, step into my world. But I think it's about getting legislators out there, right? Getting them into retail stores, doing more outreach, showing them products, having them look at things. I mean, I remember last year when we were working on SB 408, you know, we were talking about trying to get childproof plastic packaging away from flour and have flour not have to be coming out in all this plastic because it was such a huge burden on the environment. And one of the senators that was in the hearing with us kept talking about edibles and like the edibles not being in plastic. And it was just like such a disconnect. Right. But we're like talking about flour, like maybe he doesn't know what flour is. Like maybe he just doesn't understand that. You know, I mean, we even brought my own mom. She's in Connecticut. That's where I grew up. And I remember bringing her into the store and she walked right in and she goes right up to the flour cabinet and goes, is this what you eat? And I was like, oh, mom, you know, (laughs) that's kind of where some of our legislators are at is they just don't know. And they have, so I think it's just like, it's targeted outreach. It's breaking down those stigmas and being a loud advocate for what we stand up for. Cause I think once people realize, I mean, I don't, I mean, if people realized how many people in Portland were really growing weed when it was happening more, you know, in houses and at that level, like people would be astounded, you know? Um, So I think that they're are a lot of people that don't feel comfortable coming out and saying that's what they do and want to keep that separate and if that keeps continuing then that doesn't that doesn't open up the divide it just cements it more so it's just about to me it's conversations outreach and whether that's on one on one at a soccer game or at in Salem Right. Or at a political fundraiser.
1: Has there ever been talk at the association level or that you've heard of through any other group or organization for an educational campaign to help people who may not know much about cannabis, but are interested? Showing the differences between flour or edible or extracts? Or have there been discussion about a campaign to destigmatize cannabis going out there on the airwaves, print or digital platforms to intentionally change the narrative and help people understand what this really is and to take the stigma away from the cannabis industry.
0: You know, I can't, it's interesting. I can't think of one, but although I just wrote it down, I'm like, I think you just gave me a new project to bring up to my board. So thank you. One thing that has come about in conversations that I've been a part of is really focusing on the Oregon brand, but that doesn't necessarily speak to that destigmatization piece, right? That's just more about elevating the brand and having people be aware of another reason to be proud to be an Oregonian, right? Is to stand by behind cannabis. But maybe the reason why it didn't ever went off the ground is because we didn't look at that destigmatizing piece, you know?
1: Going back to that federal schedule one controlled substance status. Of cannabis. What does the OCA do when it comes to federal reform?
0: We've done a lot, and we've had to make some pivots with uh, COVID, as everybody has had to. We have done three or four trips to D.C., where we go and lobby and do lobby trips, so we're there for you know four or five days, and we go have you know a team of members go, and they're broken into smaller teams and hit the ground and reach out and talk to as many legislators as possible. So that's been one of our biggest things that we've done at the federal level. That obviously has had to take a little bit of a pause with COVID, so we haven't been able to. You know, we're waiting to be able to pick that back up again. In the meantime, you know, we have done expungement clinics. And we continue to do those. We've taken a little bit of a pause with the transition between EDs, but we're about to pick those up again. So those are ongoing and we have them going for about a year and we're hoping to have them keep going for as long as we can until there's no one left to have any expunged records, which hopefully that happens soon. So we've been working on that. We also done fundraisers for Blumenauer and Merkley. We have a political action committee an actual PAC that's also a part of our association. We look at federal issues as well as state and local issues and do endorsements and really cultivate those relationships at those levels. So we've really stuck to a lot of the legislative work right now at the federal level. And then there's another group that's kind of in starting, that's a combination of collaborative approach of all different members of the industry and different associations where they're looking at interstate commerce. And there's been a push, you know, with the recent political outlook of our country at the federal level and everything that's happened over the last couple of years, I think there's been a shift in focusing on the legal at the federal level and maybe looking at some of these interstate commerce contracts. Those might be the first ways that we get this moving. You know, no one was predicting COVID. None of these things that we knew were going to happen. And obviously, the some of the stuff that's happening at the federal level needs the federal concentration at that point. So, you know, we feel like we have been pushed down the agenda for appropriate reasons because life has happened. We've all lived through the last two years. We all know what we're talking about. We're really kind of focusing on that interstate commerce and how we can get that going and looking at what white papers that we can put out on different points. Safe banking, we've been in many conversations about that. In fact, the OCA is what helped one of the first credit unions that started openly banking cannabis clients. We worked with them to help them with their program. And, you know, currently that's one of our membership bonuses is that you get to have a bank account with a certain credit union. So, you know, we've been trying to help our members as much as possible. We're always open to new ideas with the banking. It seems like there's some new things that are kind of keep coming up with things as, you know, legislation. Rules out and looking at whether or not they're really sound, how they would work. Safe thinking is definitely a huge, huge thing for us as well. I mean, my husband and I have been through 11 banks with the store we went through. Yes, we have a whole, yeah, you know, we have a whole banking story, which is enough for another day. But safe thinking, I mean, to just be able to go to the bank, I just want to run my business like anybody else. So, you know, we've done a lot at the federal level and it's shifted a little bit recently, but you know, for all the reasons why we know. So we're looking at ways to continue picking it up when it feels like we're in a place to pick things up. But I'll have great relationships with Merkley and Blumenauer and work really closely with them.
1: Congressman Blumenauer brought this up that Senators Ron Wyden, Cory Booker and Chuck Schumer are now very interested in crafting more reform legislation. The problem with their approach is they want to craft something that is comprehensive. Like the More Act, when time is of the essence. And really at the Senate level, they should be piecemealing out issue by issue: safe banking, interstate commerce, addressing the two eighty e. But it sounds like these senators are looking at more of a comprehensive companion bill to the More Act. But Congressman Blumenauer and his team have had years to craft that. Is the OSCA going to address that time is of the essence? Like, guys, the clock's ticking here. Please, let's do something.
0: Safe banking would have been, yeah, safe banking would be the the first thing that would be amazing because that's like so much of the risk to businesses that don't have access to it from being a cash-only operated business. And then also just to be able to run your business, I mean... I mean, we also get charged a lot of money by banking with the banks that we're banking with right now. So to have those fees go down and be charged normal business fees, like that's a huge cost right there. So those two things would be huge. And I think interstate commerce and. It's really interesting. Some of the conversations that I've heard that are happening at the federal level, you know, it's some of the naivety, it's like, it's almost like going through the state licensing process again, but at the federal level. And you know, one of the comments I've heard is that, oh, well, once we make it legal at the federal level, then the, the unregulated market just goes away. And and I was just like, you know, if that's what is the perception is, we have so much work to do there. And the taxation piece at the federal level is going to be really interesting as well. And we want to make sure But it's sound taxing because if you look at Oregon's tax and then look at California's tax, I mean, there's a reason why what's happening in the California market's happening. And, you know, their taxation is like at 45 percent, not at the consumer level, but overall within the system, it's a 45 percent tax. Well, no wonder they're having some of the issues that they're having there. So, you know, it's about setting up a system that will work over time and not just lead to Walmarts everywhere.
1: Where do you believe Oregon's cannabis industry Goes from here.
0: Onward and upward, always. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think where we go from here. We need to make sure that we keep our ability to be innovative. Some of the rules that came out recently are going to, if they stay in effect, they will hinder long-term development of future cannabinoids and the innovation. So, you know, I think it's about keeping our businesses open, keeping our pathways for innovation open, and then looking at constantly how do we reach the people who are making decisions and broker relationships with them so that we can get sound decisions and policies made i mean i think that's like where we go from here and then ideally in the future future worlds we have interstate commerce federal legalization that all comes and we can be moved across state lines and federal lines just like wine the common thing is that we all i we, i can't tell you how many times in a week i probably say we just, why can't we have the cannabis system mimic the alcohol system. There are so many things that they have done well there. I mean, let's normalize it. Why can't let's let us be normal like other businesses? And, you know, alcohol is our, you know, can be our cousin and also like our stepsister all at the same time, right? You know, so I think it's just, it's the model that we have to work with right now. I think the other biggest thing from here on out is also figuring out how we work with hemp. And personally, I support one system, one plant one plant, one system, it should all be housed together. We get it housed together, we start moving towards that direction and out of a little bit of the alcohol mindset and moving towards it's an agricultural commodity and then how do we get it to work like that too? So I think there's some interesting ways that we can see how this all comes together but i think it's about marrying a lot of things because we have hemp, we have cannabis and it's all cannabis so now we're low THC and high THC and those are that's a mouthful to remember and we're still trying to normalize and destigmatize you know these things and we're throwing out all these new words so you know i think it's about simplifying i guess that's the word i'm looking for is how do we simplify this make it easier for the industry the consumers and the regulators and the legislators to continue this industry thriving and producing taxes and producing money and helping people. There's so many jobs that we have, right? Like, how do we take that and make it bigger? How do we capitalize on that? It's a lot of work, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds so easy.
1: (laughs) If people want more information on the Oregon Cannabis Association, where do they go or how do they get in touch?
0: Yeah, well, the website, our website is our number one place to go. So it's ORCannabisAssociation.org. And we have all of our information on there. We have how to join. We have contact for any questions as well. And we have all of our programs as well listed on there and some different projects that we've worked on in our blogs as well. So that's our main hub for information
1: and to keep in touch. Megan, I thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Megan Wallstatter, Interim Executive Director of the Oregon Cannabis Association.
0: Mainstream media.
1: What does it take to launch and then, in very rapid fashion, build the largest chain of cannabis dispensaries in Oregon? What are the hurdles? What are the keys to success in an infant industry with a plethora of challenges to growth and profit? To find out, we'll talk to the Director of Retail Operations for Nectar Markets. That's on the next episode of Mainstream Media on The Coin Podcast Network.